Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 52. Uh, The scripture reading can actually be found on some of your pew Bibles on page 716. And again, it's Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 52. I'll be reading from the ESV version this morning, so some of the words may be slightly different from your pew Bible. Mark 10, 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the son of Zebedees, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those with, for whom it has been prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to invite Lauren up here to give an announcement. Thank you, Emily. Um, I know most of you have figured this out or read this in your bulletin. But I'm up here to, um, to officially announce that we have completed our CB Pastor search process. Um, and I wanted, I'm delighted to say that we have 
um, invited Pastor Jeffrey Wong um, and his wife Ying uh, to join our pastoral staff um, as our CB minister. And before Minister Jeff um, comes up to give his um, sermon, I wanted to just say a couple of words. Um, First, um, many of you know Jeff and and Ying. They grew up in our church, um, and most recently, Jeff has been serving at a church in New York, um, but God has brought him and Ying back to Boston, um, and we're really delighted that um, through this time, uh, Jeff has uh, still maintained relations with our church and that he really felt and sensed God's leading for him to join our church and to serve us in this official capacity. There's a couple of, of kind of informational notes I'll also say as, I, as I'm up here. The first is that you know, we, we call Jeff Minister Jeff. Um, we have two titles here, minister and pastor. Those who are not yet ordained um, have the title of minister, and when we go, after they go through an ordination process, um, their title becomes pastor. This doesn't mean that he's any less capable or that he's anything less in the sight of God or anything like that, but I just want to say that that's kind of from an official title standpoint, that is why we refer him as Minister Jeff. Um, the second thing is that um, owing to the fact that, um, that Jeff will be doing quite a few broad roles. So he, um, he's in charge of the Young Adult Fellowship and the College Fellowship, and also will be preaching fairly regularly here, helping us out with like overall administration with, with um, CB, just kind of all the workings that, that, that go into making service happen and, and things run smoothly. Um, and also partnering with the CB leadership team and our pastoral staff for overall vision and strategy for, for Crossbridge. So we felt that um, Giving him a narrow title um, probably was not um, as appropriate, so that's why we're referring to him as CB Minister. We also know that Pastor David, even as his official title was College and Young Adult Pastor, also did many things beyond just those roles. So we wanted to acknowledge that. Um, I also remind you that we still have another CB pastor that we're still actively hiring, so that is still ongoing, so hopefully we'll have another person joining us soon. Um, but we're delighted to have uh, Minister Jeff joining us. Um, please don't overload him. He has a lot of things to do, and he's our only full-time uh, CB, CB minister on our staff. So with all that, um, again, please give a warm welcome to Minister Jeff. <laughs> Good morning. It is a uh, privilege to be able to come and preach the Word of God to you guys this morning. If uh, you're just joining us here at Crossbridge, uh, welcome. And, and maybe a welcome back to those of you guys who've been away for the summer or been away for a little bit of a while. Uh, we've been preaching our way through the book of Mark, Mark in a series called Follow Me. Uh, if you haven't been around, it's okay. Uh, our sermons, if you didn't know, are actually on our website. Uh, they're on SoundCloud. They're also on Google Play and iTunes as a podcast. So you can hit subscribe, uh, catch up on the first nine chapters of Mark. You know what to do. <laughs> You're not missing out. Now, last week, uh, Chris, one of our elders, he preached on the upside-down kingdom, uh, the upside-down economy of the kingdom, how the values of God's kingdom are inherently different uh, at times from the world's and what we might come to expect. And as we continue on in Mark 10, we're going to see more of this uh, this upside-down economy and what that means. Specifically, what does greatness and glory look like for those who follow Jesus? And, if, and in fact, what does it have to do with Jesus? As Lauren mentioned, I was uh, pastoring a church in New York for the past couple of years, and while I was there, I was also individually discipling a number of guys, uh, about nine or so, and you know, they were a good group of guys, learned a lot, I appreciated them. 
And there was also this running joke among them uh, where they would mess with me and, and tease me constantly, asking me, who's the number one disciple? You know, I, I guess because I had close to, to 12 disciples, they were making some not-so-accurate or biblical comparisons with this other guy uh, who also had 12 disciples. And they're just messing around, right? They're, they're ragging on each other to me on why they should be number one, why they're greater than the, the, the other person. And so I played along, right? Uh, and almost every time they teased me, you know, who's number one? Who's the greatest? And I'd quote that other guy because I figured he knew what he was talking about. And I'd tell them, well, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And, well, can you, can you drink the cup I'm drinking? Do you want to prepare my sermons and my Bible studies? And, and since we're on the subject of making inaccurate biblical comparisons and taking scripture out of context, one time when they asked, you know, so who's number one? I responded with, so which one of you is Judas? Yeah, it's a joke. So today, our, our passage focuses on another group of disciples who are concerned with similar questions. But with them, they're not messing around or joking around. They actually care about their own greatness. They care about adding to their own glory. And this morning, God is going to address this issue for us in his word. What does greatness and glory look like? For those who follow Jesus. And our passage begins with something that seems awfully irrelevant to that question. But it couldn't be further from the truth. So we read in verses 32 to 34, and and they, that's Jesus and his followers, they were on the road, on the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. So what we're going to see first in our passage is this, the first point, that the road to Jerusalem is the road to the cross. Jesus and his disciples, they've been traveling around, and I know that sometimes as we read through scripture, we don't pay any attention to geography, because, you know, geography is not our best subject, and we don't, probably don't even know our own geography. But in the first eight chapters, let me explain that, you know, they hunt around this place called Galilee, this area in the north of Israel. In the next two chapters, in chapters 8 to 10, we see that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, which is this capital of Israel, this city in the south. So he's making his way down there. And in verse 32, we find that Jesus is leading the way. The text says that Jesus was walking ahead of them, and his disciples and others followed. Some were amazed, some were afraid. You see, Jesus had already foretold his death and resurrection twice before. So you can imagine the people wondering, why is this guy so intent on going to Jerusalem? He's setting the pace. He's leading the way. Maybe you can imagine him walking with purpose, with focus, not delaying, 
Maybe you have in mind someone who's originally from a city like Boston or New York who walks quickly, rather than someone from you know, Hawaii or somewhere in the south where maybe they're not in a rush to get somewhere and they take their time. But Jesus, he's leading the way. He's pushing the pace. He's intent on getting to Jerusalem. And all throughout chapters 8 through 10, we see this journey motif, this theme. The, the word which gets translated road or way or journey, it's repeated several times throughout these few chapters. Jesus and his disciples are on a journey to Jerusalem. But the road to Jerusalem, what we find, is really the road to the cross. So like I mentioned before, our sermon series on Mark is called Follow Me, which I think is especially appropriate for our passage today. Now, when we first began this series, this sermon series, Pastor Jeff, not me, uh, I'm Minister Jeff, or Jeff, Jeff, Pastor Jeff Arthurs, uh, preached a sermon with three points. Three questions. Do you guys remember what those questions were? It's okay if you don't. You know, some of us weren't actually here when he preached it. The three questions were this. Who are we following? Jesus, the Son of God. Where are we going? Into the kingdom of God. Into the reign and the rule of God. And third, what will the journey be like? The same as it was for Jesus. Full of things like service, maybe even sacrifice, or suffering. And I think we see a lot of this, especially the third question in our passage today. So Jesus is leading the way as his disciples follow him on this journey. And what we find is that the way to the cross is not glamorous. But it is glorious. See, going to Jerusalem, this important city for the Jewish people, it did mean a crown for Jesus, but it would be a crown of thorns. In verses 33 to 34, we read of all these different things that they will do to Jesus. They will deliver him over to the chief priests and scribes. His own people, God's people, would betray him. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and finally kill him. The way to the cross, the way of the cross, is not glamorous. But it is glorious. Because in spite of this long list that we see of what they will do to Jesus, how does that section end? with one thing, one thing that Jesus will do. After three days, he will rise. You see, everything that was done to Jesus was gruesome, not glamorous. It was necessary in accordance with Scripture, and yet ultimately only temporary. The Son of God would not stay dead. And so in Christ's resurrection, in the cross, we see the glory of God. Because rather than see glory after suffering, which we might think of, we see glory through suffering. In the cross, what was an instrument of death became an instrument of salvation for us, for you. In the cross, we see Christ's exaltation through his humiliation. In the cross, we see God's strength and power and our victory through what we perceive to be weakness. 
That's why Paul says that the cross is folly to Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. And all this points to the glory of God. What J.I. Packer defines as God's excellence, his praiseworthiness set forth in display. And this matters because of the third question from that first sermon in that series. What will the journey be like? The same as it was for Jesus. Both service, sacrifice, even suffering. In these first couple verses, they help us to understand discipleship. It helps us to understand what the title of this sermon, sermon series that we've been working through, Follow Me, what that actually means. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has been telling his disciples about what awaits him. And each time, they don't get it. They misunderstand or they block out certain parts. Mark makes them out to be very dull disciples. With each time, Jesus has to go on to explain something about the kingdom, something about what it means to follow him. And in this first section, the road to Jerusalem is the road to the cross. And as the story unfolds and we see the disciples bicker back and forth between one another about greatness and glory, Jesus goes on to explain, look, the way up is down. Verses 35 to 45. Now let's kind of unpack what that means. Now after hearing Jesus say this horrible, confusing news, as he's leading them, walking ahead of them, James and John, who are two of Jesus' most close disciples, they have the nerve to go up to him and ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So Jesus replies, What do you want me to do for you? And seizing the opportunity, they say to him, grant us to sit, one at your right, one at your left, in your glory. And this is the problem right here that Jesus begins to address for us. What is this greatness and glory going to look like? How is it going to come about for those who follow Jesus? Well, greatness and glory don't come through a self-serving spirit. They don't look like a self-serving spirit. James and John, they're looking to share in Jesus' glory. But really what that means is that they want more of that glory for themselves. They want to be great. You see, their expectation was that with Jesus being the Messiah and all, that would mean freedom from Roman occupation. That would mean Jesus establishing an earthly kingdom of Israel with him ruling from on top of that throne. And they wanted to sit right there, up there, next to him. And despite Jesus telling them, hey, look, guys, you know, just FYI, when we get to Jerusalem, some things are going to go down. I'm going to die. They heard, when I get to Jerusalem, we're going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Israel is going to be in power. And they wanted a piece of that. They asked to sit in Jesus' glory at his right and left. But really, they're looking to serve themselves, to add to their greatness. And we kind of see this too as Jesus brings up this example of these rulers of the Gentiles. Because he says to the disciples, look at these people. These are the people that you're looking to as a standard of greatness, right? In the eyes of the Jewish people, in the eyes of the disciples, these rulers are the people who would have absolute power and authority and greatness and glory in their eyes. Jesus says in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
Their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, self-service doesn't mean that it doesn't guarantee greatness and glory. The disciples' understanding of what greatness and glory were and even how to achieve it was misguided. It was misaligned. It needed changing. So Jesus confronts them. And he asks them this in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, yeah, we're able. Tell us what we need to do and we'll do it. Whatever it requires for us to to achieve greatness and glory, if that means suffering, we'll do it for that reward. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Now that's strange, right, when you think about it. Why does Jesus ask them if they can fulfill these conditions when it's futile to begin with? See, the disciple says, we're able. Tell us what we need to do and we'll perform it. We'll do these things. And Jesus says, great. But even so, to sit at my right hand or my left is something for God the Father to grant. Sorry, you're out of luck. Why? Because the disciples' understanding of greatness and glory was was misaligned. They thought they could earn that greatness and glory by doing certain things. But Jesus says, no, it's it's not like that at all. I mean, yeah, you will drink this cup, because, meaning that you will endure suffering because you follow me. But you don't accept suffering and hardship because of what future rewards might be given to you. You accept it because it is my way. It is where I lead. Because of who who I am, it is the way of the cross. And when it comes to greatness and glory, we're not too far off from that kind of thinking that James and John and the rest of the disciples had. Especially when when we think of situations where there's limited spots. Right? James and John talked about sitting at Jesus' right and left. There's only one right and one left. There's only two spots there. That means James and John left out Peter, who was also kind of part of that close-knit group. They went behind all the other disciples' backs. Now, this doesn't mean that the other disciples didn't buy into the same uh, misunderstanding of what greatness and glory were, because Jesus is teaching all of them. It just means that James and John took advantage of that opportunity. No wonder the text says that the other disciples were indignant at them. Now it makes sense. When when there's limited spots, these questions of greatness and glory, especially as it pertains to us, tends to arise, especially in our own sinful hearts at times. And we can easily, or maybe perhaps not so easily, see how we ourselves view greatness and glory and acceptance before others or before God. For example, college admissions, right? Limited spots, obviously not two, but it's definitely limited. Otherwise, we wouldn't be all stressed out about it. And what is greatness? Perfect SAT scores, minimum of, I don't know, three to five extracurricular activities. You know, what are you going to talk about in your common app? In your interview with the college, you probably won't say, you know, I'm better than the person you just interviewed and the person that's waiting outside uh, to come in after me, and here's why. 
But that's probably what you're implying, right? What sets you apart from all the other college applicants? What makes you so great? And what did you do to deserve this greatness? And why they should acknowledge that as well? Job offers, right? Limited spots too, same deal. I'm more qualified because of X, Y, and Z. I have more experience, tackled more projects, graduated top of my class, list goes on. Maybe even childcare. You know, some, some places have limited spots, right? You're trying to get your kid into a good program or into good childcare. And you think, why should my child be led into this program? Well, my child learned to speak at an earlier age than, than that kid. My child is well-behaved, even if you might not think it. My child is this or that. Explicitly, you tell them how great your child is, according to certain standards of greatness and glory, and implicitly, you tell them how not so great other children are. Now, these are all things that aren't necessarily bad, right? I'm not suggesting that we stop doing these things, like trying to get into a good school or trying to perform well for our jobs. But we also need to ask ourselves, is this ultimately how I'm measuring greatness and glory for myself? Am I ultimately seeking to add to my own greatness and my own glory or to God's? To give you one last example from you know, my own experience, sharing about the, the resume, you know, creating a resume for someone who's in full-time ministry, the pastor or minister's resume. Now, writing a resume as someone who's in full-time ministry, it's a really strange thing. Now, I, I used to meet up with some, some pastors in, in New York, and we joke around about this, because there's just some strange tensions here. Right? Some of you have written resumes before. On the, on the one hand, you want to showcase your talents, your skills, your accomplishments, what makes you great in the eyes of the world, and you follow the standard recommendation of writing out your accomplishments as I accomplished X, as measured by Y, by doing Z. So some of you who are going to apply for jobs soon should, should take notes. Right, so for example, I, I increased church giving by 25%. By pre, I didn't actually do this. By preaching a sermon series on giving and increasing member, uh, instructing members on specific financial needs of the church. Now on the other hand, for those in full-time ministry, because we know scripture and we know what Jesus says in Mark, it's as if our entire resume needs to have a second or third page with a huge asterisk. And in huge, bold, uh, bold font, all of this is done by the grace and power of God. Now, we don't, for obvious reasons, but, and because we're in ministry, right, we, we have to quote a Bible verse even if it's unnecessary, and so we add 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, which says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. So as someone who's had to do this quite recently, it's difficult, right? There's these weird tensions. To remember that as great as these things might be, it may not be what God ultimately defines as greatness. And also be sure, to be sure that the glory that we seek is for God. Not ourselves. Now, on the flip side, too, it's also difficult for those who have to read these resumes, right? Resume after resume. So you got to give props to the church leaders and the, the committees that, that have to go through all these resumes, trying to balance that weird tension and constantly asking, you know, I see what this person accomplished here. You know, that's great. But is this person as great as Jesus sees greatness or, or just great as the world sees? It may not be mutually exclusive, but sometimes it is. And all of this is not always immediately apparent 
on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Now, when we buy into the belief that greatness and glory comes through this self-serving spirit that raises up our own accomplishments, what happens is it also affects how we view others, how we see others. I think this is in part what Jesus is driving at by using the examples of these authorities who had absolute power and authority. The very people that the disciples are looking to as examples of greatness and glory. And he notes how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them in their leading. They exercise authoritarianism, perhaps, in their authority. Maybe perhaps we can easily face the same challenges. The boss who, because of how he or she got into that position by their own merit, can easily look down on the employee who can't. The husband who looks to his own greatness and glory, which he determined by his own merits and qualifications, can easily criticize and lack love for his wife. Greatness and glory do not come through a self-serving spirit. James and John, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're looking to go up the steps to sit on that throne beside Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong. The way up is down. The way up is down. And this is because greatness and glory come through, and it looks like self-sacrificing service patterned after Jesus. Verses 43 to 45. Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So with one word, this word but, Jesus changes direction. Things are different with those who follow Jesus. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave. Not literally, of course, but he's saying that greatness for those who follow Jesus Christ is understood as humble, self-sacrificing service. And he begins with Jesus. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, then, is the model and the motivation for our obedience. I mean, that's what these first couple verses in our passage is all about. Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many now. That, now, that for him, that's, that's his specific mission. We're not to emulate him in, in that way since we can't. We can't die for the sins of the world. That's already been done. What we're called to do instead, though, is to follow him. To follow him in service, in sacrifice, even suffering. And we do this with joy. In Hebrews, the author writes, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of adding to God's, or of glorifying God, the joy of seeing these people saved, he endured the cross. Now I have to ask, I know there's a couple of us, in this congregation, who in this congregation went to Wellesley College? I know there's a couple of alumni here, and, and I don't know if all of our Wellesley students are back yet. All right, a couple. So, pop quiz. What is your motto? 
Yeah, right. Uh, in Latin, uh, non ministrari said ministrar. I butchered that, but for the 99% of us who don't understand Latin, it, it is what they said. Not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That sounds really familiar, right? Where do you think they got it from? Not to be served, but to serve. The Wellesley College logo still has that phrase, I think. Now, the original Wellesley College logo from over 100 years ago had that phrase, not to be ministered unto, but to minister, inscribed around a Kiro symbol, which if you didn't know, it's the first two letters of Jesus Christ's name in Greek. Now, that's interesting, right? Now, here's the important thing for us. The command for us not to be served but to serve is not simply good advice, not simply a good motto or noble endeavor, but it is rooted for us as Christians in Jesus' own self-sacrificing service where he died on the cross for our sins. We're not just to be humble or to serve others. We're to imitate Christ's humility and service because we see what he's done for us. He loved us. He died for us, even though we didn't deserve it. And that grounds us. It keeps us from self-righteousness and legalism and elevating ourselves above others and to criticize others and look down on them. And instead, it drives us to do the same for others what Christ did for us, especially when they don't deserve it because we know we didn't either. What does greatness and glory look like? Not a self-serving spirit, but self-sacrificing service, pattern after Jesus. Put simply, the way up is down. And it's a particularly good reminder for a church like ours where many of us serve. You know, for some, Jesus' words that whoever would be great among you must be your servant are a call. It's a call for you to take up the cross, to love your neighbor, and to serve them whether that's outside of the church or or inside the church, because there's many needs. Now, for others, what matters most might not be those words, since you're already serving, and maybe for some of you, a lot, actually. But what matters more is Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Because what you need to be reminded of, perhaps, is not a call to serve, It's the reason to serve. And that reason, that motivation is Jesus himself, whom you're following. Because what others call service, you might might call suffering and sacrifice. But Jesus did all that, and he did it for you. And so we set our eyes on Jesus, and we look to him. We look to greatness and glory, not as the world sees it, but as Jesus does. This leads to the third and last point in our passage. What matters, perhaps, is not so much physical eyesight, but spiritual insight. Verses 46 to 52. Now, in this last section, kind of like with the the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, when I preached a little while ago, the story seems to change direction. It seems to be kind of irrelevant here. We have a, a new character, a new scene. But here, like like the woman in Mark 7, this blind beggar serves as a foil to the dull disciples. Mark begins this this kind of second act 
in Mark 8 to, to 10 with Jesus healing another blind man, man. And then now he ends it with another healing of another blind man. And in between these two accounts of these blind men are three instances where Jesus is telling his disciples about, uh, about his death and resurrection. His disciples just not getting it. And so here we have this example of Bartimaeus, who sees more with his blind eyes than the disciples do with their working eyes. And I think Mark, as he's writing this, he wants his readers, which includes us today, to identify with this blind beggar who had spiritual insight. Spiritual insight that, that looked to Jesus in faith, not for favor or fame. Now, when we read the passage, passage as a whole, there's a lot of differences that you might notice between the, this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and these dull disciples. For one, the disciples, obviously, they could see physically, but they just didn't understand this greatness and glory concept. Bartimaeus, he couldn't see physically, and yet he had enough insight to call Jesus son of, God, uh, son of David, a, a messianic term with strong political overtones. The same political overtones that, that his disciples would have bought into. But instead of asking for a medal, he asks for mercy. The disciples go from following Jesus to wanting to sit beside him in his glory. Bartimaeus goes from sitting on the side of the road to following Jesus on the way. And by the end of the story, both the disciples and Bartimaeus are on the way to Jerusalem, following Jesus. That's how our passage is wrapped with this word way or road mentioned in verse 32 and also in verse 52. But they're going for different reasons. Or at least the disciples were at an earlier point. The disciples see Jesus and they follow him. They go to Jerusalem for fame, for favor. They, they look to what awaits them, that crown, that throne. Bartimaeus sees Jesus and he follows him. Going to Jerusalem, perhaps because of faith. Because Jesus had already healed him. And now he responds in discipleship, in following Jesus to Jerusalem, whatever might await him there. What matters is not physical eyesight, but spiritual insight. And part of that insight is seeing the upside-down economy of the kingdom, as Chris preached last week. And not only that, but making sense of it. Bringing it to bear in our own lives. If you didn't know, our, our eyes actually see things upside down. Because the front part of our eye is 